what do people mean when they say, I love your brand? And what we kind of boiled it down to, because people weren't saying it directly, but after talking with so many customers and kind of really trying to dig into what is it that you love about our product and our and what you call our brand, we really pulled out the idea of just people reconnecting to what matters most. And I think for sure during COVID, that only propelled it even further, right? Because everybody was just just had the desire to connect with friends and to be together with family again and really made us have that perspective of what really matters, what really matters in your life. And while there are things that can be fun, nice luxuries that you go spend money and purchase, a lot of that material stuff is very fleeting. And what lasts and what really, really penetrates the soul is those connections with other people. We stand today. The Business Method with a shadow. The Business Method. The Business Method Podcast. The Business Method Podcast featuring Chris Reynolds. Entrepreneurs' systems, methods, tools, and tactics. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, people of all ages, I'm your host, Chris Reynolds, and welcome to the Business Method Podcast, a podcast featuring over 500 episodes of entrepreneurs and high-performance experts dissecting their different methods, tools, and strategies so we can apply them to our businesses and lives. We've been fortunate enough to interview some of the leading experts in business and performance today. The billionaire CEO of Priceline, Jeff Hoffman, the CEO of Chipotle, Monty Moran, world's top big wave surfer, Laird Hamilton, the first black woman to build a billion dollar company, Janet Halroyd, world's top investment expert, Jim Rogers, and the list goes on and on. All of these guests you can find on the podcast backlog using Apple, Spotify, YouTube, Google, and any podcast app you prefer. Also, you guys, have you started listening to our micro high performance episodes yet? We've taken the most powerful tips and tricks from over 400 interviews that our guests have shared on how to optimize their own personal performance, and we've made them into digestible micro-podcast episodes that are just two to 10 minutes long. We publish these on Monday and Friday each week, and those episodes are labeled as HP number 123456 and so on. Those episodes are live now, and they're designed for you to consume some quick, high-quality content while you only have a few minutes to spare. So be sure to subscribe to the Business Method podcast on your favorite app so you can get those delivered as soon as they're live. And now, let's hop into today's episode. The Business Method. Hey listeners, real quick before we get started, I wanted to tell you about our trips and adventures for entrepreneurs. We have live events in different locations around the world, luxury trips to the Caribbean, adventurous trips to knock off your bucket list, and of course some private business events as well. If you're an entrepreneur, we'd love to have you join us. Make sure to subscribe to our newsletter at thebusinessmethod.com to stay updated. And for those established entrepreneurs out there that want to be involved in a community that is curated specifically for seasoned business minds, then we have a group for you. Inside this group, we have private live events in different locations around the world specifically for our members. We get those members in a place where they can connect, collaborate, and grow their companies faster just by being around one another. We also organize private podcast viewings and Q&A sessions with some of the world's top entrepreneurs like Jim Rogers, Alex Hermosi, the CEO of Chipotle, the marketing mind behind GoPro. And as a member of our group, you'll get to hop on calls with our podcast guests regularly to ask them any questions you want. And the last benefit is access to private world-class 
masterminds that are specifically curated for whatever challenges you're going through at the time. Our purpose with this private community is to help you expand your network, connect with some of the brightest minds in business today, and help one another overcome business challenges faster. You can learn more about our community at thebusinessmethod.com. Remember, subscribe to stay updated. And now, let's hop into today's show. The Business Method Podcast featuring Chris Reynolds. Listeners, welcome back to the Business Method Podcast. And I want to ask you, how would you turn down a, uh, how do you turn a side hustle into a $2 billion business? This might sound too good to be true, but it did happen when Spencer Jan jumped into entrepreneurship and started a business in his garage in 2010 with his brother and only $15,000 to his name. Spencer has started numerous e-commerce ventures since, but nothing surmounts to the wildly successful solo stove that upended an entire industry and grew into solo brands where they eventually raised $219 million through an IPO, giving the company a $2 billion valuation. Here to share that story today is the founder of Solo Stove, Spencer Jan. Spencer, welcome to the podcast. How are you, man? Doing good. Thanks, yeah. Chris, for having me on. That that was a nice introduction. Thank you. I uh, was it accurate? Feel like <laughs> it was very. Yeah, it was very good. Very good. <laughs> good. Good. I'm excited to have you on the show. As as I think I mentioned in our email exchange that we're interviewing a hundred people that have built billion dollar companies and learning about the nuts and bolts of how people did that in the different stages of those companies. And what I liked uh, immediately, what I liked about your story is that one, you're you're younger. I'm guessing you're in your late twenties or thirties or right around there. I'm I'm way older, Chris. Now you're making me feel old. No I'm way. Actually, I'm actually 43. You're 43. No yeah, way. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so I didn't start actual entrepreneurship till I think I was about 30. Oh wow. Okay. Yeah. Which is a little bit later than what I feel is the norm these days. I've met so many entrepreneurs that are so young. I know. And crushing it. And I'm like, man, I'm a dinosaur compared to you guys. And I didn't start till. You know, these guys are already have finding success, you know, like you said, in their like late, late twenties, early thirties. I'm like, I barely started yeah. when I was 30. <laughs> I, I started when I was basically 27. So like I was kind of late twenties as well, but I have a very good friend, you know, you're in Dallas and I was in Austin for a couple of years and it's just, Austin is a place that's flooded with entrepreneurs and the amount, I have a very good friend that's a pretty successful YouTuber, Leon Hendricks. I'll give a shout out to him. And he, you know, by the time he was 25, had a very successful YouTube channel. This was his second business venture after he scaled an e-com business and sold it for 600,000 euros. So like, you know, it is amazing to see the younger generation start, but I don't think, you know, I was thinking about this the other day too, is like Joe Rogan didn't start his podcast until he was in his forties. Like, and that, yeah. that's kind of, and if you heard, everybody's heard the Kentucky fried chicken story where, you know, he sold his recipe in his sixties and became a multi, multi-millionaire or whatever. So, so yeah, there's, there's always time. I think I probably, I probably would have done better if I started even later. I think, uh, you know, you just mature mm. in your thoughts and your, your decision making process. Then I look back and think, boy, when I was in my early twenties, what kind of decisions was I making? And right. They're probably not the best ones. Uh, I think they got better over time for sure. And I we think, uh, you know, any anybody out there who's 30 or 40 or even 50, there's, I think there's, there's never, you know, cut and dry, black and white time of when's the best time to start. Yeah. I think yeah. It's whenever you're ready. 
Yeah, there's there's no wrong time to start, and it's sometimes not even when you're ready. Sometimes it's just like having the courage to do that, and that's the the most important thing. Yeah. What I did like about your story, and I think I got this part accurate. You can tell me if I'm wrong, but you you started off. You and your brother started off as bootstrapped lifestyle entrepreneurs. You just wanted to create like a business that could help make money so you can live the life that you wanted. Is that correct? Yeah, that's that's totally right. And 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 before we dive into there, I always find it necessary to like I love the introduction. I love the the buzzwords of two billion dollars and stuff, but by no means was it all my effort, right? And there was just you know, the the way that the team has grown and scaled and the leadership that's in there right now, they've really been the ones driving it, right, to 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 all sorts of different levels. So I definitely want to give them a shout out and make sure that, you know, I'm not here standing solely on my own saying I built a $2 billion company. By no means was that me. I definitely started it uh, with my brother. And we did start it in those humble days of like the garage. And, you know, it was, it was like, Back at that time, and I'm sure many entrepreneurs kind of got their kick from reading Tim Ferriss's Four Hour Work Week. Yeah, and that really was—I wouldn't say the catalyst, but that was kind of the time. That was kind of the mindset and the time era of when we kind of started was when that was kind of the big thing. And we just looked at our lives and said, "We don't want to wait until we're old to be able to retire and go live life." There's so many things we wanted to do, and and you know, your, your family's only young once. And, you know, all these thoughts kind of came together and made us think like, what, what do we really want? And it wasn't that we wanted to go start a company and make a bunch of money. I mean, that was the last thing on our minds. Now, obviously we needed to live and we need to support our families and make, make a living and kind of take care of that kind of career, the, the, the stability that a, that a career is thought to bring. And so we really just wanted this lifestyle business, just enough, just enough to get by, I, maybe a little bit more, right? Just get us to a point of comfort financially so that we could have time to go do whatever we felt like we wanted to do. And and the four-hour workweek book was just for us, is just this mind-blowing articulation of kind of what we were, I see we, me and my brother were feeling. And when we read it, we were like, that's it. That's exactly what we're feeling. Like... I, I could, I had the sense and stuff, but you know, it wasn't until he kind of laid it out in a, in a book where I was like, exactly, that's exactly what we're feeling. And I think most entrepreneurs, a lot of them, at least that I've met, have that same kind of feeling of they got into it for a reason that's greater than I just want to buy a fancy car or I want to have a bunch of zeros in my bank account or I just want to go, you know, ring a bell or whatever it be. Um, <laughs> so yeah, for sure for us, it was a, that lifestyle that lifestyle business. So like small, not too big, just enough. And then, and then give us our time back. was more of the thought. Yeah. That, that book had a huge impact on my life. I think I read it first in 2009 and then I reread it, uh, since I've read it, read it and listened to the audio around 12 times or so. And it's like you soak up, you soak up that knowledge and it's just such, it's very impactful because it's a path to freedom that nobody had seen before up to that point. Most people hadn't seen, right? And I yeah. think you saw that, I saw that. I know other people on the call have seen this. Many of the listeners, I'm sure, because a lot of our listeners are the location independent uh, digital nomad types. Yeah. And that was a huge, huge impact for them with that book. Okay, so in, in one thing that that I want to point out, like 
what you said earlier about you didn't have the intention of making a bunch of money so you could buy fancy cars. This is the same thing that everybody that we've interviewed that have built billion dollar companies have said. They always said, you know, I I wanted either I I saw a need and I needed to fill it. I had a huge passion to fill that need and I could focus on nothing else but that. Or I just wanted to create something that was great. And then you guys were kind of into camping and you wanted to, you thought, hey, let's try and, you know, create some some camping stoves for people. Yeah, I think I think it goes back. I mean, the, if we're talking about motivations, I've thought about this a lot too, is, um, you, you know, when you see a, or learn of quote unquote successful entrepreneurs, guys that have built businesses that are able to grow and scale and and make a lot of money, I think it's, that's the byproduct of something deeper, right? Whatever it is, and whatever reason somebody starts a business, I really feel like that's the core and central piece of what can later be called a quote unquote successful business in in a headline or you know in a little in a little snippet. Because we wanted that lifestyle so bad, mm-hmm. we we would just do anything for it, like whatever it was. And before I even started e-commerce, it was like blogging. I started learning about blogging and how people were making money blogging. And I was like, that's a path. That's a path that I could take. And so I started to blog and I spent a whole year writing a blog that was totally failed. What um, were you blogging about? I was blo- So I was actually living in Shanghai, China at the time, working for this company overseas. And I started blogging about traveling, business travelers in China. So I would, I would blog about currency and culture and food and etiquette and how to find suppliers, how to take the train, how to book tickets, where to stay, where, you know, all, all sorts of things related to traveling uh, in China. And I did that for like a whole year and I blogged just religiously and I was learning. And, and so you could imagine I didn't really figure out how to, how to drive traffic to my blog. I learned the basics of SEO and collaborations, uh, affiliate marketing and pay-per-click ads and stuff. So I really cut my teeth blogging, but I was so willing to try anything, any sort of business I could kind of, that would help me kind of attain this, this freedom, this kind of, how do I unchain myself from, from the, from the regular grind of just work till you're 60 or 70, and then finally be able to retire. And so I was just willing to try anything. And e-commerce was one of those things that kind of popped up at that time as I moved away from blogging, I was like, well, what else can I do with the skills I just spent the past year learning that wasn't very financially fruitful? And so I transitioned into selling stuff. And while people think we were, you know, super avid backpacking guys and camping guys, we, we, we did a lot of that, especially in our youth. We grew up in, me and my brother, we grew up in Canada. And so there was a lot of outdoors hiking and portaging and canoeing and all that stuff. I think guys of our generation just spent a lot of time outside in general. But were we, were, did we see this need? Did we like, were we just so passionate about fire and smokeless camp stoves and then eventually fire? I'd say not, not first and foremost. First and foremost thing that was driving me was this I just want my freedom. Like I would do anything to get it. And this was a path there. And so I latched onto it. And we quickly fell in love with e-commerce. It's just fun and exciting. And there's, you know, it was a breath of fresh air from what I was doing in my previous life. And so it was easy to kind of keep going on it because we did enjoy uh, what e-commerce was. But unlike maybe Yvonne Chouinard, who's passionate about saving the planet and so creates sustainable clothing and all that stuff, 
I don't know if we were so passionate about camping and backpacking as we were, like we were just talking earlier, that lifestyle. I just wanted it so <laughs> bad. And and this was a path and this was yet another thing I could try to see if it could get me there. And between my blogging and solo stove, there were, I would say, hundreds of other products that I had sold online. Yeah. And so solo stove was just yet another. Is this gonna is this gonna be another drip in the bucket for me as I kind of just start selling tons of things and gardening products to to water fountain features to uh, electric heaters and fireplaces to plumbing products and faucets exterior RV lighting like also I sold so many different things and so solo stove was one more thing that was helping me get to my my end goal of like this this freedom give me my life back kind of uh, journey. What was the magic behind Solo Stove that made it the the behemoth that it became? Yeah, that's a good question. You know, there's so many there's so many parts to it that I think I really tell people, man, the stars aligned, and it's hard it's hard to pull everything together, but it really is everything that it was. So it was an amazing product that we had designed and come up with. We had an amazing. Uh, supply chain figured out partner uh, partners in in terms of supply chain and factory uh, contract uh, manufacturing. We had great boots on the ground in in Asia to help us get going. Me and my brother made a great partnership. We cut our teeth early in digital marketing from blogging all the way to selling all sorts of things. So when we got to that point of like, here's the opportunity, we were ready. We were ready for that opportunity. Not that we knew it. But in hindsight, I can say, oh yeah, I mean, we had whatever it was, you know, a couple of years of boot camp where we just slogged through the mud and just we had fun. But in hindsight, that's what really prepped us to say, oh, now when you have the heydays of 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 Google and the heydays of Facebook ads and the heyday of Instagram and all that stuff kind of coming together, the opportunity was just right. And it was just, are you ready? Are you ready for that moment when it comes? And it, without those opportunities of timing and luck that you know I have no control over, were we ready at that time to seize the opportunity? And 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 luckily we did. Uh, the product was amazing, and we continued to develop new product. I feel like we got lucky on some of those, uh, on some of the product development. We got lucky in hiring the right people, guys that came in that were better than us at, in certain areas of the business that we were reluctant to to let go of. So, I mean, it's just a culmination of, of so many things, but for sure, you got to have a great product. I mean, without that, it's, it's really hard to kind of take it to, to the next level um, because we had sold so many things, but solo for sure was different. It had IP and defensible IP. And there, there was just so many things that I think of with you know, the branding side of it, we were able to create an emotion attached to this product that was a little bit harder when you're selling like a wire harness for a car. There's mm -hmm. not much emotional attachment. Like, can you build a brand? I mean, the brand stops with a with a fancy logo, a nice color palette, and like a tagline right. for for stuff like that. But for Solo Stove, we were able to go deeper and find this. It was really discovering this emotional attachment that people had with this product, and we were like, why is this happening? It was amazing to dig into that and to figure out, oh. People like this product, yes, because it works well and functions well and is unique, but there is a deeper emotional value tied into this product that they're using and that experience 
of being together with people that they enjoy, finding a reason to gather and then to spend quality time. You know, I, I'm, I'm kind of going off on a tangent, but I, I started picking up golf and I realized like I, up until now, I've, I've thought golf's the stupidest sport ever. It's not even a sport. It's like a game, you know, this is, it's, and I was like, why do people play it so much? And so I started to kind of go down this rabbit hole and I was like, let me give it a go and see what this is all about. And what I realized is that it's not just about the game. It's about the social aspect of being together with two or three people on a round of golf for four hours and the value that's that comes out of being together, sharing laughs, having funny things happen, and stories to tell afterwards, that really makes golf fun. Sure, it's a challenging game and everybody can kind of get into the, the technical side of it and the skill side of it. But And so there's a challenge on that front, but there's a very, very important social side of golf. And so when I think about solo stove and how that translates, we kind of had that same experience where, there, where we were like, yeah, it's an awesome product. It's mm-hmm. awesome fire. We found a way to harness the airflow so that we reduce smoke in the combustion process. And what we realized though, is that allowed people to gather around this beautiful flame that's just mesmerizing and to hang out together and just to have laughs and to have kids put down their phones and start getting sticky faces with marshmallows. And just all of these things started happening where we were able to create a brand. And I still think the brand has lots of upside and a lot of opportunity to continue to to grow and develop and evolve. But that's one of the big parts of where I feel like Solo Sove really grew legs and found success was, I mean, there's so many things, but brand was for sure a huge unlock. Describing it, you make me want to sit by the solo stove and, and cook a marshmallow, Spencer. Like I'm, yeah. I'm getting <laughs> nostalgia <laughs> for, for camping out. Um, and for the listeners, can you describe a little bit more, you know, the solo stove isn't wasn't the first type of campfire stove that was out there, right? Like there have been many more. Yeah. What and and I think in I think I read somewhere that you were talking about, you know, most of the world changing products were not necessarily the first version of them, right? Uh, Steve Jobs didn't make the first iPhone and Elon Musk didn't make the first car, right? Yeah. So so tell the listeners a little bit more, like what was so unique about Solo Stove that made it stand out from the rest? Yeah, I think, you know, we weren't the first to make a twig burning or a wood burning camp stove or a backpacking stove, which is where it started. And many people don't know that because they know it as kind of the the backyard fire, uh, smokeless fire pit that we eventually got into when we started moving more into that mass market and and kind of unlocking this this community away from the hardcore campers and backpackers but we started with camping and backpacking stoves and there were obviously lots of other camp stoves in fact there's a whole community of tinkerers who just make stoves you know there was a, a youtube channel that we got hooked on that made these small little we call them penny stoves or alcohol stoves that you can use denatured alcohol for backpackers to reheat food and boil water. And there was this YouTube channel of this guy that would just make extravagant alcohol stoves and they would make all sorts of pipes and bends and make the flames swirl in different ways. And it was just so neat. By no means were we the first, but I think just thinking on how do if how do you improve something? How do you make it a little bit better? How do you mm-hmm. make a better mousetrap? And I think that's how we all think 
as consumers. I mean, everybody's held something in their hand and said, why, why doesn't somebody make it with a strap going this way? Or why, why doesn't somebody just put something here so it makes it so much better? I think naturally as a user of products, we all think that way. And so it was just a matter of believing in that methodology and saying, how can we improve something? How can we make it better? How can we manufacture it better? How can we make this uh, product last longer? How can we make it look cooler? And I think it was just those iterative, uh, that iterative process of just not thinking like we had to become inventors of something totally unheard of. Mm-hmm. I mean, by no means do we invent fire, right? I mean, fire has been around as probably the first product that was ever out there, right? Is just get a get a, a stick and start striking it, and suddenly you have this beautiful thing. How do we harness that and bring it into the product and make it beautiful? Um, and and so I think a lot of people freeze or or early entrepreneurs, especially in the physical product space, and think like, I don't have an idea. I don't have I don't have anything that I can think of to make or that's not already out there. Well, that's the whole point. Is like everything's already out there. You just need to make an iteration on it. Mm -hmm. And I remember there was a YouTube video. I can't remember what his name was. I think it was a Kirby something who did like a TED talk. And he talked about how everything's a remix. And he talked about how music, within music, you can hear the same beats and melodies in music spanning decades and how everything kind of just borrows upon each other. And then he brought in the example of Star Wars and the elements of Star Wars borrowing, uh, borrowing things from other movies, you know, the struggles and the battles and putting it into just a new skin where it's in this galactic galaxy of battle. And, and you know, is but in other movies, you can kind of see it, whether it's in a, in, a, in, a, in a Western movie or whatever. And so there's everybody's borrowing from everybody in the past and just iterating and improving. And I think when I look back on it, that's really what happened. And I think anybody in that physical good space should cut themselves a break and not feel like they have to go make, you know, this brand, you know, they have to send, I don't know, like invisible rockets to the moon in order to have a shot at at, uh, at starting a company. I think, I think you can actually bring the bar quite down, much, much, much further down and say like, how can I just iterate on product? And that's all we did. People always ask us like, were we product designers or do we have a design degree? I was like, no, but we tinker and complain about things all the time. I mean, that in of itself gets me halfway there in terms of how can I make this product better? But it was beautiful. You know, the way we made it, it was difficult to, to make. It was difficult to engineer with the, with the factories we were dealing with. A lot of the machinery we had to use was custom made because you know existing factories were like well i can't bend it that way or i can't make what you're thinking but if i had a machine that did this and that and you know how do we polish it this way you know there's all sorts of things that we i think brought into it and at that level we were more willing to try harder on developing a better product and really making it good but yeah that's kind of the evolution of how we thought through it and how we eventually got to making pretty pretty amazing products i think you were talking a lot about the brand and how the brand really, you guys really nailed the brand and it helped for the growth. We interviewed Paulo Tiramani, who's the founder of Boxable. Have you heard of Boxable before? Mm-mm. So they actually create foldable homes. And so for $50,000, you can buy a home. They deliver uh-huh. it on a truck, not a mm-hmm. semi, but a regular truck. And then they drop it off and they unfold it within an hour and you have a home. You know, it's not super huge, but but it's like a portable, foldable home. And Elon Musk bought 
one of their homes and he uses it at Star at their Starlink headquarters. And one of the things that he said is that when building a brand that you've got to have a catchy melody and not necessarily pointing towards music, but the catchy melody in any hip hop song or any song out there that makes it go get super popular is like a a melody that like people can repeat in their head and mm-hmm. and they memorize it and it's like exciting for them. So for Boxable, there the melody he said was watching the home actually unfold. So they had a video of the home dropping off the trailer and then the home unfolds and people are just absolutely mesmerized by it. You know, they're on TikTok, they're on Instagram, they're on all the reels and it's going viral because it stops you and it's like, oh, this home is being unfolded and it's a real home. It's a legitimate and, and uh, a stable, sturdy place to live. And so I'm curious with, with you guys in Solo Stove, did you have something similar to that where it really, and I know you talked about, you know, sitting around the campfire with, you know, the emotions involved with people, but did you have something that, a melody, so to speak, that made people just want to be a part of Solo Stove or have experienced Solo Stove? Yeah, I think what we eventually pulled out after kind of stepping back and thinking, why do people love Solo Stove? Because everybody would always tell us, our customers and people who have bought our product, they'd always say, you have an amazing brand. I love your brand. And in my mind, I was like, I don't think we're even there yet. Like, I don't even think we have a brand, but everybody was always telling us, we love your brand. We love your brand. So we we had this thought to like, let's just step back and really dig into what, what do people mean when they say, I love your brand. And what we kind of boiled it down to because people weren't saying it directly, but after talking with so many customers and kind of really trying to dig into what is it that you love about our product and our and what you call our brand, we really pulled out the idea of just people reconnecting to what matters most. And I think for sure during COVID, that only propelled it even further, right? Because everybody was just just had the desire to connect with friends and to be together with family again and really made us have that perspective of what really matters, what really matters in your life. And while there are things that can be fun, nice luxuries that you go spend money and purchase, a lot of that material stuff is very fleeting. And what lasts and what really, really penetrates the soul is those connections with other people, mm-hmm. whether it be your friends or your spouse or your kids or extended family, your neighbors, right? They're, just this connection really drove it home and sealed the deal. And that's why if you listen to the quarterly earnings calls of a solo right now, you'll hear how much business comes by way of referral, which is just word of mouth. And you think, how does that word of mouth happen? Well, it happens because you're inviting people to this visceral event of, of gathering around this beautiful flame that's mesmerizing. There's probably food and drinks involved and stuff that really feeds the soul. And then the company that's there and the jokes that are had and the experience that it creates because there's not smoke scaring everybody off and blowing into your eyes and stinging you and just being like, I don't want to be here anymore. Because we've eliminated that problem, it allows people to gather and that's what people take away and they share on social media. I mean, I just remember there was a post and there were just two feet. All you could see is two feet and the, the flame and the caption 
got the guy put was just um, like chilling with dad. And, and it just was like, that's, that's the connection that matters. And to be able to foster that and create an environment for that, I think really drew people in. And I think subconsciously, I don't think, I think there people are drawn in by beautiful product and great visuals and obviously pictures that lead, uh, allude to this event. But I don't think it's until they use it where they say, Hey, they call their neighbors in, you know, it, Halloween's coming up and you'll see Halloween. People will bring their solo stoves out to their um, driveway and yeah. just hang out there as they give away candy and people will hang around long and uh, parents come by and they're just like, what is this? this is cool. And there's no smoke blowing in people's eyes. And so they all go home and be like, I kind of want that. I want to be able to hang there. I want to be able to have people come around and gather around this warm fire. And so I think, I think that to us was what we boiled it, boiled it down was just that, that, that desire to, to reconnect to what matters most, the desire to connect with people that, that really gave the brand some legs to, to, to go off on and help people understand that and thus help people buy into what we're, um, what we're all about. You mentioned uh, we can listen to quarterly business calls for Solo Stove. Where can we do that at? Yeah. I mean, if you just go, if you just look up Solo Brands, I think if you just go to the to the the investor portal, they have, because Solo Brands, after we sold a couple times to private equity and then IPO'd, a holding company called Solo Brands was created after we had acquired a few other companies. And that's the the company that went public. And so you can go on there and there's an investor portal and it'll have links to the the calls, the quarterly calls um, that have taken place since IPO and the upcoming calls. You can hop on live uh, and listen, just as you could any other public company, uh, and listen to those quarterly calls. And it's interesting to 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 hear uh, the progress over uh, over the time that um, it's been public. So you guys. You started in 2010, and and then you sold part of the company. Uh, your first sale. When was that? First sale to, to private equity was in the fall of 19, September of 19. Okay, so after mm -hmm. nine years, and then I think you sold about half. Is that correct? We we sold the majority stake uh, okay. at that time. Held on to a minority position and moved to the board as board advisors. Um, so we stepped away from daily operations. Um, so if anybody's listening to this and wants to send me sales pitchy emails on their SaaS software that they think can change my business, please don't. I'm no longer in the operations. And <laughs> and uh, so we stepped away from operations at that point, but uh -huh. got to go to a board position, which was nice because we got our time back. We got our We got total freedom. We took care of the financial problems in terms of, you know, security for our families and but we were able to still stay involved as an, in an advisor role. And then 12 months later, so not very long later, so one year later, just enough to get our capital gains treatment on the next um, tranche of equity that we sold, we sold again to a larger private equity group, Summit Partners at that point. And, um, and after that sale, we came off the board as advisors. So we were actually really out-out. Uh, yeah. We still held equity and we still rolled forward equity going forward. And we still retain quite a large chunk of the public company's equity in our holding company. So we still are equity owners, but from a very passive position at this point after it's gone IPO. Could you, so then, so the, I guess uh, roughly 11 years or so that you were with uh, or working with Solo Stove, 
or building solo stove. Could you break those years down into chapters, different phases of the business? And, yeah. and what would you title each chapter? Yeah, the first, you know, I think I could probably break it down into three, three chapters. I mean, okay. three real chunks. And the first years from, call it 2000 and, 2009, 2000, 2010, all the way up to 2016, those six years was, you know, what would I title it? I'd title it Duct Tape and Dreams. <laughs> you know, that's because the, we, yeah, I like that. I just, you have a friend who, who sold a company just recently and he just, he just turned 40 as well. And he said, I was like, what, what do you remember of your thirties? And he was like, man, I was just treading water for my entire thirties yeah. and now I'm totally. okay. But right. So that kind of sounds like duct tape and dreams. Yeah. I mean, when you build a business, especially at the beginning phases of it, at least I was, I was very embarrassed mm -hmm. of what I was doing because I didn't know what I was doing. I was just trying. I just knew that nobody could tell me that my goal of attaining freedom was stupid. I knew that wasn't stupid. Yeah. I knew that was very, very uh, in line with my values and something that I really, really wanted. And so nobody could tell me that. And and so it was a matter of, I'm doing everything I know possible to get there. And yes, it doesn't look like anything anybody would give praise for. Mm -hmm. it, it was very messy. It was a lot of trial and error. It was a lot of, I don't know, but I'm just going to try it. And if I look stupid, so what? And as we started to gain traction and build and start to sell things, you know, we didn't, we didn't even do our books. We didn't have bookkeeping for the first like few years of our company. Cause I was like, I don't even know what that is. Like back then I didn't even know what bookkeeping was. I have yeah. a liberal arts degree. I never took an accounting class in my life. And while I've heard the term and I, and I kind of knew what it was, I'm like, well, I don't, I don't know how to do it. So uh -huh. I do know that if I have enough money in my bank account, I'm not going to die. So let's just, whatever we have in the bank account, I can deal with that. Like I've, I, I know how to kind of save money and, you know, I have this business I'll save for it. Like, why do I need books? Mm -hmm. And so we just do it. We would just go until we hit a pain point of like, you know, when taxes are due and I, and I had undersaved for it and suddenly I'm hit with a $400,000 IRS bill and looking at my bank account being like, now, why do I not have that money? <laughs> uh -huh. Like, how do I not have that money? Oh, I spent it all on inventory and growth and new product. And I didn't say like, that's when you start to realize, oh, there bookkeeping is probably important. It's probably <laughs> good to know your profits and how much you're making. And so the beginning years are very, very much just go do it. Just put your head down and, and then figure out the problems when they come. And in hindsight, there was a lot of pain that was probably unnecessary, but I yeah. didn't know any better. And my brother didn't know any better. And we just did our best. And if somebody were to look at our company at that time, they'd just be like, wow, you guys are a mess. Wow. It's held together with like tons of duct tape and you don't really know what you're doing, but you have a dream, but you had, you were so motivated to reach this goal that you're just willing to slog through it all and just keep putting one foot in front of the other. And then, you know, 10 steps later, lift your head up, see where you're at. And if you're heading in the right direction, put it back down and do another 10 steps and just keep trying to solve problems. And that was, that was the, those beginning years because we did a lot of selling on marketplaces like Amazon and eBay, 
all the platforms. Heck, we even did Sears.com when that was a thing. Wow. Yeah. When That's, we started, yeah. it was like there was no Shopify. It was like Yahoo stores. And mm-hmm. um, I mean, there was just there was just all this, all this opportunity for for putting e-commerce together as it kind of rolled out through the years. But yeah, um, it was held together by a lot of duct tape and uh, a strong dream. Um, and we did that for a long time, all the way to 2016 where it was still still just me and my brother mm-hmm. and we were doing millions of dollars in sales i mean we were probably what, what were you doing roughly in 2016 i would say we were probably i think we were probably somewhere in the 7 8 uh, million maybe close to 10 million dollars in sales okay. it would fluctuate but profit wise we were we were raking in millions of of dollars of profit mm-hmm. and we were doing really really well and Solo was starting to grow legs as well. And this wasn't just Solo. This was like a myriad of products. In fact, Solo probably made up a small minority of all that we were doing. Okay. Um, and we were heavily selling on the marketplaces like Amazon. In 2016, we realized that our dream of freedom and time was fading quickly because while it was in, it was this inverse relationship with a quote unquote successful business, the better our business did, the less time we had to do, we had for ourselves. Right. And so it's like, well, duh, you know, if your business is going to grow and you can't figure out how to scale it and automate it, you're actually going to create the thing you didn't want. And that's what was happening. And so we got to 2016, we said, we're doing great financially. We're making tons of money. And, but the problem was we didn't, you know, we were like, this is what we don't want this thing. Mm -hmm. We never wanted to set up you know, this company that did that well. And we kind of were a victim of our own success in that in that sense. And so we tried to sell it. So in 2016, we made the decision, we don't want this anymore. It makes a ton of money. It's going great. There's tons of opportunity. It's exciting, you know, for what it for what it is as a business. But this greater goal of time and freedom is just fleeting. And we want, we want to go chase that. And so we were willing to let it, let it go or sell it and then go try to start another business. And, and do a better job at kind of protecting our time and creating this lifestyle company. You know, the, the Tim Ferriss kind of the, the four hour work week sort of idea, which yeah. I'll tell you is, is harder, is harder to do than, than you would yes. think because oh, yeah. you have to kind of stop, you know, wanting to make more money and say, I just want, you know, it's, it's a hard balance to create. Which is so hard for six, most everybody to, to, for sure. to comprehend and do. Yeah. Yeah. And so from the next, you know, the second chapter of it all was from that 2016 to to about 19, where we exited uh, in 19. So those three years is kind of chapter chapter two of, of that business cycle uh, for me. And what would I call that chapter? I'd call it, I'd call it pain, pain for a good cause. That's what I, <laughs> <laughs> that's what I'd call it. I call it pain for a good cause. Uh, for a good cause. I love. It I, was. Prob- I love your chapters. I'm loving. You like. Them. <laughs> <laughs> I'll probably after the after we record this, I'll be like, oh, I should have named it this something else. Yeah, <laughs> yeah something else. Like, is it realistic? Three- real sorry, real realistic description of what entrepreneurship is really like. You know, because yeah. you see the see the riches and the success and the travel and all this, yeah. and and most people, you know, they're just like biting their nails every day, just hoping they can get oh, this thing yeah. like survive for the next you oh, know, month, sure. a quarter a year and uh, and at all the different levels like i've interviewed eight-figure entrepreneurs that are like pulling their hair out and about ready to 
to to just shut it all down because they just don't know how to handle it. So yeah. Anyway, I okay. It. Yeah, please continue. Sorry. Yeah. So that from 2016, we decided, okay, let's let's in our minds, we were like, let's get rid of this thing. It's and that's really how we felt because while it was really profitable and really really you know great numbers selling really well, we just we didn't want the thing. Mm-hmm. And we just like, let's get rid of it. It's not healthy for us to have this. Mm. And we went to go talk with other people and talk with brokers and and investment bankers. And we were lucky, lucky enough to be introduced to a couple of people that were able to tell us, hey, this really isn't a company. It's just you and your brother. You work out of your homes. You know, mm-hmm. you, you, you don't have a whole lot to sell if you guys aren't going to stay in it. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so we really, it was an awakening and we said, wow, well, what, you know, what do we need? And we made that checklist of all the things that, you know, a good company would have if they were going to be able to put themselves on the market and, and command evaluation, mm-hmm. the infrastructure, the team, the management team, the new product development, all sorts of things that you just really need as a good company. And so, we set out from 16 to 19 to build that. We wanted to hit certain numbers so that we could have an exit that that made sense financially for us, that we seize the opportunity of, of having a good exit by getting to the numbers that we wanted to get to. So we set some lofty goals for ourselves. We hired just relentlessly, just so many, it just, it just felt like every day we were hiring. That's all we were spending our time doing. And, um, and building, you know, we brought in all our fulfillment in-house from 3PLs. So we got a 50,000 square foot warehouse. We put offices in the front and brand new built out. We were the first tenants in there. And so we built that out, brought in a whole warehouse team, bought forklifts and racking and, mm-hmm. you know, pick and pack stations and the whole bit. And um, really just focused on building this thing to sell. And it wasn't fun, Chris. It was not fun at all. Mm-hmm. It was, there were times where I felt like I was a kid just on the ground, throwing a temper tantrum, you know, kicking my feet and stomping my hands face down on the ground because I just was like, enough. I just can't do this anymore. It's just not enjoyable. Mm. The, the problems you face are ones that you just, or I, I just didn't, I just didn't want to deal with those. They were just, it was nonstop. It was, you know, dealing with finances and accounting. It was dealing with audits. It was dealing with personnel. It was dealing with people, you know, looking at your other employees in a weird way that made them feel uncomfortable. And suddenly you're trying to deal with this situation of, oh, why don't, you know, why don't you guys just do your work? You know, why don't you guys just put your heads like, can you stop staring at each other? Cause obviously it's making everybody, un- I just don't know. I, you know, as all these problems that I was just like, I'm I'm sick and tired of it. That's why I never wanted, you know, a big company. Mm-hmm. And I think what goes along with that is that I just didn't have the skill set. Mm-hmm. I didn't have the skill set to deal with that. I wasn't mentally prepared. I didn't want that challenge. And I wasn't, I didn't have the skill set to deal with it. And and I think most entrepreneurs are that way, is that they are good at certain things, which inherently means they're good, they're bad at other things. Yeah. And that's fine and natural. And I think normal, none of us are great at everything, but um, that's kind of what it came down to. And I was like, can I, I just want to do digital marketing. I just want to focus on the data and analytics and the, and the funnels and the, you know, the, the, the SaaS products that I can use to create efficiencies. And that's what I really love. I want to do product development. I want to work with the manufacturers and make better things, 
but I can't because I'm just stuck on hiring and hiring and managing and putting in processes and making sure that Monday meetings have a structure mm-hmm. and people are held accountable and just all these, all these kind of um, different skills that I wasn't ready to do. And luckily we made it through, you know, three years of that and got it to a place of sale and probably starts the the last and final easy chapter, which is probably, you know, half a page of freedom. I'm out. Peace (laughs) (laughs) is probably what, uh, (laughs) what I would title it, but, um, that was a a great run. Yeah. Those different chapters are rough and it's not an easy path. You kind of have to be dumb and naive to start a business. Yes, you do. Yes, you do. Yeah. Yeah. In 2019, when you guys decided to, to exit at least partially, what was the size of the company then? When we exited around there, I think I, I hesitate to talk about those numbers just because I'm just wondering where 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 I can kind of it wasn't it wasn't giant. I think uh, EBITDA was in the was in the seven seven figures and sales were probably uh, in the eight in the eight figures in the eight figures somewhere around there. Yeah. Um, if you're smart enough, you can look online and pull up the Solo Brands S1, which is the public filing that that all companies need to make before they go public. Okay. And you can read, if you're smart enough, you can decipher all the numbers. Uh, and I hesitate to share them because I'd, I only want to share what's public and not share things that I promise not to talk about um, as I've signed plenty of, of uh, um, NDAs. NDAs and non-disclosures and stuff. But if you're smart enough and you're great with numbers, pull up the S1. It's right on the Solo Brands website. You can just Google Solo Brands S1 and, and pull it up and you can see all the numbers and it might go back to those days and tell you where it was in those years, but yeah. What was the experience like for you moving to uh, the year that you sat on the board? What were some of the key things that you learned during that time? And and were you on the board when they went public or was that after? Yeah, so I came off the board. I was off the board when Summit bought, which was the second private equity group. Okay. They that was the I was after that where they acquired through more companies and went public. Okay. Um, so while I got to go to New York and stand on the podium with the guys, I I was very much passive at that point. Um, so not not on the board and not making those decisions to go public. I just we just had to get our lawyers ready. You know, having yeah. equity, you just have to sign a bunch of stuff and kind of go along with the ship as it moves. But but we got to see it kind of from a from a kind of bleacher standpoint and see how that process works. Pretty interesting how it goes. But um, what was your question before that? You mentioned? Yeah. What were some of the things that you learned oh, right. um, while sitting on the board? Some of the uh, yeah. uh, maybe more memorable experiences that you had there? Yeah. You know, you get to go in on a quarterly basis and have quarterly board meetings. You know, the management team prepares a presentation, gives you an update. You talk about the financials, you talk about uh, what has happened, the highlights and the lowlights and kind of the path forward. There's a lot of strategy planning kind of decisions being made as the direction of the company. But all in all, you know, when a company's doing well and hitting their numbers, private equity isn't in there to to turn the ship 180 degrees and say, I think the other way is better, right? right? Private equity is there to park money in a good investment that they believe in from, from the get-go. And that's why they're willing to put money on it, mm-hmm. right? And the hopes is that that management team executes on the plan that they were sold on. 
that the private equity group was sold on. And so to the degree that they're doing that well and the numbers are hitting and the, and they're actually making progress towards these goals, not a whole lot is gone is it goes on in these board meetings where uh you know somebody you know pounds a fist on the table saying like we're making cars now or whatever it is, yeah. you know. No nobody really does that. And I think Solo has been fortunate in that they the management team that was in place has executed well on what their plans what they had kind of planned out for um, the milestones, the numbers, the growth, uh, kind of the the projection of where they're heading. And so to be honest, those board meetings were pretty, there were no surprises. Everybody kind of just was there to, um, you know, get a good update and to share ideas and to kind of dump any thoughts that you have on the table for, for them to kind of move around and think about. And between board meetings, if, if they do need help with something or if they do want input, they're always, you know, the team's always quick to reach out. And so there were phone calls here and there about, you know, a situation that maybe I might be able to shed some light on or provide advice on or, but really it's a, it's a really passive situation. Obviously as founders, we got to have these board seats as kind of, I don't know if it's considered etiquette or kind of just good practice, right? Uh, to allow us to kind of stay on and be able to stay attached to this and make sure that, you know, the, the, the new captain of the ship isn't steering it in the wrong direction. And it's kind of maybe insurance for the private equity group Mm -hmm. to have the founders stay in just in case they're needed. And in terms of the, the DNA or the historical information, but really my brother and I, and our holding company, we owned a minority share in this company. Mm-hmm. So while we can talk, our voices were not the majority. And right. so if there were things that wanted, you know, there were opposing views that wanted to go in one direction and we wanted to go in the other, well, we're in the backseat. You know, it's what you give up when you sell your company, at least the majority share of it, right? You don't, you give up control yeah. and you're there to help and support, but it's a very passive role. And you quickly realize, oh, you know, these, these guys all have a plan. They've been marching towards it and um, they're doing good at it. So you know, it's not my place to change the plan or to tell them, you know, otherwise it's just uh, more of a helpful role to be in. So if entrepreneurs find themselves in there, I think they'll probably find a similar situation. I think the hard part is for those that get in that seat and still want total control mm-hmm. where they have a strong opinion on where the company should go, where it could be frustrating. Cause you're like, I'm seeing my you know, my, this thing that I've built my quote unquote baby move in the wrong direction. And that, that bothers me for me. I was like, you go in any direction you want. You bought the car, you can drive it any way you want. You want to do donuts, go ahead. You know, (laughs) Uh, you know, I hope our equity turn, uh, you know, does, does well for us. And it did the second turn. Uh, The second bite of the apple was fantastic. Mm -hmm. While it was a smaller percentage of equity that we gave up, it was much more financially rewarding than the first bite of the apple. And and so really as an investor at this point, I just hope that I get a great return on my investment and wish them, you know, all the best, but they get to drive the car any way they want. And I'm okay with that. Yeah. Do you have any major regrets from your, your time with Solo Stove? I, I don't think I can, I, there's nothing that I lose sleep over and nothing that really comes to mind in terms of like, I really regret this. I, I think I had a great amazing run. I couldn't be more blessed with how it played out. And the learnings that we had were tremendous. The The ride that I had with my brother, who's two years my younger. And, you know, since, since we were kids, we've been attached by the hip and everything we've done from 
fishing to skateboarding to snowboarding together to building a company together we never argued one day wow in like our decade of working together because wow. it was always family first you know this this isn't worth souring any sort of relationship so if he was super passionate about something and i was like ugh i'd just be like well he's going to have an amazing journey and we're going to figure out if this works or not and if it doesn't we'll get through it together and let's just go your route and we'll try it. You know, who am I to say my way is the better way? Who knows? Like it's all, it's all a choose your own adventure. And I feel like the adventure I wanted was with my brother. I just wanted that adventure, whatever it was, mm. right? Whether we went and slay the dragon or slay the two-headed snake, I just wanted to be on the adventure. And it made it, it made it really easy. And so that was just a really fun journey and zero regrets with you know, could we have done certain things better? Of course. Could we have learned bookkeeping a little bit earlier and saved us some pain? Sure. But is it a funny story to tell now? Yeah. You know, there's, <laughs> so there's all these, all these fun things that transpired that I think uh, in hindsight, I couldn't, I couldn't have, I couldn't have asked for a better story uh, and a better journey. That's incredible. What are you, what are you up to nowadays? Yeah. You know, it's a good question. I think that's probably the question I get asked most. I've, I've spoken at some e-commerce events and, um, it's one that I feel like I almost need to make a t-shirt that says what I <laughs> what I'm doing is because I get asked a lot. And the I think that why it kind of gets to me is because I don't I don't really have like a direct answer. I do know that I'm doing everything other than having to worry about financial security at this point. So with that off the table, which I feel like, you know, in a prior in a prior earlier on in my career, that was very much at the forefront of my time. It was just figuring out how to build a career, make money, advance my career, and continue to grow professionally. I've kind of now taken the equation of having to stress about money and finance off the table. And so I just live life with everything else but that. <laughs> and that just, you know, everything that anybody does, right, is just spending time on relationships, spending time on your physical health, spending time on um, your spirituality, spending time with building relationships with friends and, and being social and continuing to challenge myself intellectually, whether it be working with small companies as advising or investing in a small company, or lately I've been learning real estate and, and learning about the world of real estate investing, you know, finding different things to fill that bucket of, of continuing to challenge myself intellectually, but also making sure that I spend a lot of time on those other buckets of, of, of social, spiritual, and physical well-being. I always like to talk, Spencer, to, to the people on the show about how they manage their life and their daily routines. And um, I'm very curious, you know, it sounds like, you know, when we started, the, before we started recording, you mentioned you, to me that you like, I feel like any other person in the world, you know, I just like, I'm still you know, figuring things out myself and I'm, you know, you're learning as you go, but you don't seem, you don't feel like you're super, you know, important or special because of what you've done with Solo Stove, which is very relatable. But I'm curious, you know, you had a wild ride for those, especially those nine years when you and your brother had a lot of stuff going on. What did you do to manage your daily routines, to manage your life and, and, and balance your life during that time? Yeah, I think I think if anything, it's it's more so what I didn't do. I think that's why it, it was there was so much pain in those three years 
right of that second chapter and and i think that which one was that, that? Was, pain for a good cause <laughs> yeah yeah as is you know they we got in that situation probably because we didn't do a lot of the things we should have done you know and trying to find balance so that we mm -hmm. could keep this company going because a lot of people say well why why didn't you just hire someone yeah. to run it and just not sell or sell at a later time and you know it's easier said than done and when you're in it you're just like well i've built this beast. I don't know what to do with it. Mm -hmm. I don't want to hire and I, I don't know how and all this stuff. And then I quickly lost balance. Like I think in the early years, I would say like the first few years of, of growing our business. Oh, it was awesome. I mean, selling online, we felt like we were the epitome of the four hour work week mm -hmm. because we would go pull my boat on a Monday morning and me and my brother would head to the lake and we'd be going fishing while we'd watched everybody else fight rush to hour to yeah. go to the work. And we felt like this is it. We've done it. Like it was this tangible feeling of, you know, you're in between casts and you're looking at your phone being like, oh, we just made a quarter million dollars on Amazon. Boom. And it's like, <laughs> put the phone back in the pocket. And we were just like, keep fishing. And we really felt like we achieved it. And then obviously as the years went by and the company continued to do well, it kind of was started, it was very fleeting. Uh -huh. And I think it's those years where I wasn't able to find balance. I wasn't able to figure out how to spend my time well in all the areas of life that matter. And while building, building a business is great and, and you know, there's, I don't throw any shade on it. It's great in and of itself. But when you look at life in general, I just think it's a small part of what I want to be my legacy. I don't want to be known as the guy who built solo and rang a bell and took it from the garage to 2 billion. It's a great story. And there's lots of learnings that I'm willing to share and want to share, but I don't want it to end there. I think there's so many more things that I want to do and, you know, people that I want to love and have them love me. And I think that's a, a bigger part of what I'm seeking mm -hmm. um, than building a company. And so I lost a lot of that balance as I was building this company. And that's why I was just fighting, fighting for a way to get back my time. And I just, the exit was my path out. And that's why we fought so hard for it was because we were like, the goal is there. We just now, like while we thought building a lifestyle business was the end goal, when that didn't work out or when we didn't do it very well and it turned into this behemoth, now the, the pivot is now let's sell this thing. And mm -hmm. if we sell it very well for a good valuation and a good number, we can have it. It wasn't what we plan to do, but it's what what we're going to get uh, if we do it right. And so I would say my my life was not very balanced during that time. My stress levels were incredibly high. My relationships with other people were pretty much non-existent. It was me and my computer, and that was it. And, uh, you know, I didn't spend time on my body, and I could feel that wearing down on me. I remember developing, like, sciatica in my, in my leg oh, wow. because of just sitting for hours and hours and hours on end that my whole right side would just be numb yeah. and I'd try standing and I'd try everything, but I just fought through it. I was just like, I have no idea what's happening with my body, you know, going through a process, you just don't get any sleep. And I remember like there are various times where like my face was breaking out, like I was physically breaking down because mm. of the stress involved. And I just didn't think I did a very good uh, um, job at balancing. And so now when you talk about what are you doing now? I'm really trying to focus on that. I'm trying to focus on balancing my life in a way that's healthy, where I'm happy and challenged uh, all at the same time. And it's just, it's nice because I cannot have to worry about the financial side of it, which is obviously the big stressor in most people's life, which makes it tough. And I give 
credit to those who can find balance while they're growing a company or while they're working. It's just not easy. Uh, and it's something that I, I have a lot to learn from others that are doing it well. Spencer, I'm, I'm curious if you did have to pick a business venture to get involved in, say you didn't have the financial security that you have, what do you think you would do at this point? If I needed to make money, is that yeah. what you're talking about? Yeah. Yeah. I think I'd fall back into what I know. Um, I think I'd go back into e-commerce. It's it's what I'm comfortable doing. I can do it with my eyes closed. I have no doubt that I could do really well with any sort of e-commerce play that I put my mind to. And so it's it's kind of what what I know, but it's definitely not what I'm doing now. People mm -hmm. ask, are you going to do e-commerce again? I'm like, heck no, that's hard. <laughs> like I, I know I can do it, but it was hard. And there's a lot of a lot of uh, luck and timing involved. There's a lot of trial and error that has to be had. There's a lot of tough, tough days in that pursuit and probably any entrepreneurial suit for that matter. But it's what I know and what I'm comfortable doing. Uh, I'd probably dive back into that and um, just have to set up real strong barriers for time and balance and health and stress levels so that I don't fall back into that same scenario, which is probably why I don't go back into it right now. Yeah. Um, because it is such a slippery slope and can can suck you in pretty good. <laughs> All businesses can. Yeah. All businesses can. Yeah. Man, I've I've really loved this interview and and getting to know you and your story and the chapters of your life. Duct tape and dreams. I've been there definitely, and I know yeah. many people who who have roamed around the chapters of pain for a good cause. Not exactly the smartest thing to do in the world, but I reckon, you know, <laughs> but so many entrepreneurs are doing that, you know, they're, they're thinking yeah. to themselves, if I can just get past this point, you know, another year of anxiety yeah. and stress, and then it'll all be, sometimes it doesn't even work out for you and it's not really yeah. worth it, especially if you burn through relationships. Yeah. But this has been a great interview, man. It's really great to know you and, and, and get to know, uh, the story of Solo Stove. Any final words you'd like to leave for the listeners before we sign off? Yeah, no, I think uh, you know my hat goes off to all the entrepreneurs out there. It's a it's a difficult road, but if you surround yourself with good people, uh, it's a it's a journey that you can always look back on and and appreciate and encourage people to keep charging forward. Yeah, amen. If the listeners want to reach out and learn more about what you have going on, Spencer, is there any place they could do that? Yeah, uh, you can find me on LinkedIn. I try not to spend much time on social, so I don't do Instagram or Facebook or TikTok or any of that stuff. So LinkedIn is kind of where I segment uh, those that want to reach out to me. Um, I did start a, a YouTube channel uh, last year. I saw and that. Shared some uh, videos on entrepreneurship and e-commerce, and hopefully it's a little bit um, helpful to those that are just starting, probably more catered to those earlier on and, and thinking about taking the plunge. May or may not continue that, but you can look me up there. Uh, it's just my name, Spencer Jan, uh, on YouTube. But uh, yeah. I saw a cool video of you interviewing a guy that was in prison for 10 years, and then he became a, uh, took what he learned in prison and, and started a business when he got That's out. Such right? an amazing story. He was super nervous, and so was I, <laughs> but he has such a cool story. He learned how to tattoo while he was in prison. Mm. And 10 years later, he's out and owns his own company and is growing his, his tattoo parlor. And I'm just always impressed with any, any of these entrepreneurs that really take a plunge. Uh, and it was, it was fun to kind of share his story, but I gotta, I gotta ask, what do you go to prison for? Uh, you know, I, I don't think I, I don't think I, oh, oh, it was drugs. I did ask okay. it was drugs. I think it's actually in, in, in there, 
but I, uh, but yeah, I was, it's one of those things I was like, do I even ask, do I even dare to ask? But <laughs> I think it was drug related, uh, but he's such a great guy and has, has really been a, a real great success story in the community. It's uh, incredible. In this area. Yeah. Great, yeah. Great, great story. That's good to hear. Well, I like your YouTube content, so I hope you keep it up, man. And uh, I'm sure there's other people that do as well. But um, yeah, dude, thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing all your tips and tricks and wisdom for us. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Spencer. Thanks, Chris. Okay, we're going to sign off there. Listeners, you guys, thank you for tuning in once again, and we'll see you on the next episode. Goodbye, everybody. Hey, listeners, thanks for joining us. And once again, we wanted to remind you about our adventures and trips for entrepreneurs in our private community. If you enjoy luxury trips to the Caribbean, going on bucket list adventures around the world, or just traveling to connect with other established entrepreneurs, then be sure to subscribe to our newsletter to stay connected at thebusinessmethod.com. That's thebusinessmethod.com. Thanks for joining the show today, and we'll see you on the next episode.